Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is a little plug up the top. I'm not doing many plugs up the top uh, at the moment, maybe ever again, who knows. Do you like it better when I don't talk up the top? Occasionally I have to because I've got some stuff to plug. But I thought this would also be a good episode to, t- uh, to check back in. Oliver Twist is my guest today. Uh, this is a chat I had with Oliver a few weeks ago now, but uh, I read his book, Jali, which is, um, you know, is going to be published very soon. And I, I really highly recommend it. There are so many incredible stories of his journey having to flee his own country because of a war and becoming a refugee and his journey to Australia. Um, we could have really just spent the entire episode <laughs> talking about those things. Um, he's an incredible young man with an incredible story, but he's written that story down in a book that I'd love you to read in his own words. So instead, what I've tried to do is use me knowing that story to inform this chat that you're going to hear today. And I hope that if you enjoy this, if you find him to be an entertaining and thoughtful and intelligent young man, which I'm guessing you're going to because... We uh, still managed to talk for a very long time without touching on any of the most interesting parts of his story. So I think that you're going to really enjoy this chat today. So thank you for your support of the podcast. Uh, it is back officially now. I've resisted the urge to pretend that it's not back officially. We are back doing them. The proviso at the moment is that I am only talking to comedians because uh, that's my little compromise. I'm not quite... Uh, things are a little too fragile for me to go right back out into the big bad world. But uh, I love talking to comedians. And if I'm going to talk to comedians anyway, I might as well record it and you can have a listen to it. So there will be more coming, uh, some with some, you know, big famous comedians, but a whole bunch of them with a whole uh, lot of names that perhaps you haven't heard before. You probably heard the name Oliver Twist before, but you might not have heard it in relation to today's guest on the show, for example. So please, I've, I've, chosen to talk to all these people so uh if you've enjoyed the podcast over the years then even if you haven't heard of these people maybe some of them are starting out on their journey a little bit more but i think it's really interesting to talk to somebody about their life philosophy at that early part of their life we can check back in later but it's nice to hear you know what they're thinking right now particularly in the way the world has been recently it is Something that I am very passionate about is, you know, having conversations with people who are more towards the start of their journey and had that start of the journey interrupted and how their world looks like now and how they're going to shape the world as we see it over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So anyway, that's, that's why I'm back. That's what the joy that I'm personally getting out of this. And you in return get this podcast most weeks without me being doing a big rant at the start of it. So. Uh, part of the reason uh, is that I'm just busy. I have a whole bunch of other podcasts, uh, if you don't know. They're all at tofop.com or just go to the Tofop feed on whatever place you get your podcasts. And uh, they're all there in the one feed. There is Tofop, uh, a podcast I've been doing with my dear friend Charlie Clawson for 13 plus years. And that's just a funny catch-up chat that we have with each other every week that you might enjoy. And then uh, we have a spin-off of that called uh, Tofop with Friends is the rebrand of that. It used to be called something else. Let's not get into it. But uh, it is also on the Tofop feed, and that is Charlie or I talking with somebody else. At the moment, uh, that has had a theme to it, as I have been doing a little spin-off called Two Guys, One Urn, uh, which is me talking to various comedians about the cricket that has been happening uh, both uh, well in England, but both the World Test Championships against India and then the Ashes in England. It's been very fun. 
lots of fun comedians having a laugh about everything that's been happening in the cricket. So uh, if you like cricket or if you're a bit interested in hearing cricket talked about by non-expert people who are just having a laugh, then uh, that might be a podcast you can check out. As I said, you don't need to remember even the names of all these. You just go to TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P, you sign up there. All these various projects pop up in that feed. So if you want to check them out, uh, yeah, tofop.com or just uh, type in tofop, subscribe there. There's going to be heaps of cool stuff there. But anyway, this is philosophy. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to support the show, then uh, patreon.com slash tofop, T-O-F-O-P, is the place to go. There is ad-free episodes, bonus content, uh, bonus content of all the other podcasts. You get it all. Uh, and everybody gets everything for the minimum sign up. So uh, you can give as much or as little as that you wouldn't miss. So uh, that would be fantastic if you want to support it. If you can't support it financially, then uh, leaving a review or, um, you know, recommending an episode to somebody else is always something that you can do to help spread the word. Um, okay, that's it, I think. Okay, my, my plugs. The whole reason I'm here in the first place, sorry. I apologize. But anyway, here's the thing. I am a standing-up comedian by trade, and I am doing some of my improvised stand-up comedy shows. They are called What You Talking About, Will. They will be at the Sydney Comedy Store, which is the place that I originally started doing that show. Uh, I have the longest connection of doing that show in that room. It's the perfect show for that room. So you have, if you happen to be in Sydney or the Sydney uh, area over the next couple of months, starting next week, uh, I will be doing their Saturday afternoon shows. They're good fun. Um, I just make up a show in the room on the spot, never to be seen again. It's all good fun. I do talk to the audience, so if you don't like that, don't sit down the front. But sit down the front. I'm fun to talk to on stage. We'll make some something funny happen together. It'll be very good. Uh, any other cheering dates that I'm doing around the country, comedy.com.au is the place to check that out. Uh, my book is called I Am Not Fine, Thanks. It is available in places that you buy books or audio books. And uh, Gruen, the television program that I do, is available on ABC iView. You can watch it on ABC TV, do, but do people do that still? Probably not people who download podcasts. I assume you're watching it in some sort of catch-up form. So all the episodes are available on ABC iView, as is last year's uh, stand-up show, The Logical, uh, last year's season of Question Everything. They're all there for free on ABC iView, so catch up on those. There you go. Um, they're the plugs. Uh, so yes, no, it is probably better not to do this every week, but you're getting it this week. Uh, and, uh, um, I really appreciate how many people have come back and started listening to the podcast. Uh, yeah, if you could spread the word that it's back and, uh, if you're enjoying particular episodes, share them with people, follow those people on social media or all the places that, uh, young people hang out and make work and consume their work and share their work. And that would be really great. So, uh, thank you. <laughs> now I feel like I'm making a speech. I haven't done this for a while. I've got rusty. I do realize that mostly what I do in these is just bang on, right? So I think I've banged on. So here's today's podcast. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is how the show starts. Uh, I'm going to pause because my guest has just taken a drink and the, the way the show starts is me asking the guest who they are. So I'm going to very politely wait for them to... Oh no, they're taking another drink. This is a power move at the start of this podcast. This is how the show starts. Uh, who are you? 
<laughs> Hello. Um, hi, Will. My name is Oliver. Uh, I don't want to pretend like we don't know each other. Um, but for the listeners, I was just clearing my throat. Uh, nothing, nothing powerful about <laughs> what was happening. Um, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing? You look very well, is what I will say. I'm, like, we're not in the same place today, unfortunately. I was hoping we might be able to do this face-to-face. But uh, it turns out that despite everybody saying that COVID is over, COVID is not over. And everyone in my life has COVID. I don't, but I am now <laughs> in a self-imposed lockdown okay. to avoid getting COVID. So, sadly, we are staring at each other through a computer screen, not face-to-face. But I will say, you look very good. Can you tell me... Um, about your jacket, like before we get into this, because I really love the jacket that you're wearing. This is very good for an audio medium. <laughs> Me just immediately going with a very visual question, but um, it's a great jacket. Thank you. It's it's winter, so I'm I'm trying to stay as much warm as possible. It is a butter jacket, which is a Perth based skateboard company, and I love their stuff. And this is very warm. And it's a reversible, so I can wear it from inside and outside. I mean, the inside is pretty blank and kind of boring, just black. Mm. But the outside is kind of this um, weather kind of, if you've ever seen like a a weather description of anything crazy about to happen, that's what it looks like. Got a little bit of red and uh, yellow and blue in it. Um, it's, It's really nice. It really basically looks like what I imagine the future will look like, where the oceans, so the blue, the, the oceans have taken over the world and everything else is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's got that feel to it, a bit of a psychedelic trip going on. Um, well, it's lovely to have you here on the show, Oliver Twist. When people ask you the question, who are you, how do you respond? Um, how do I respond? It depends. You know, I am never conclusive about who I am just on a generic answer because that would make it easier for everybody and me. And then I would be too robotic. So, you know, in the professional setting, people are like, oh, who are you? What do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a creative. I'm an artist. I, I do a bit of this, a bit of that. Um, and, you know, to, to a prof- like a sort of a personal level, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm a brother to three sisters, you know, a son to a mother who is um, in Queensland and I'm in all over the places, ending up in different places. Um, So the question is answered depending on who's asking it, which um, is is a bit of fun for everyone because then you get to know someone on a a different level because you never have to give them a generic answer. Then it might be an interesting answer that you might give them. I was very uh, – uh, good answer, by the way. I, I appreciate that and it makes a lot of sense, particularly as I've just read your book. Now, when's your book out? Tell people about your book briefly because I want to talk to this answer to your question through the prism of the book. So uh, tell people what the book is called, when it's out, any information that you know that you can tell people. Let's do a plug <laughs> right at the top. Like, Let's not save the plugs right till the end. Let's okay. get a good plug in okay. right at the top of the show. He said tell me any yeah. information you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, well, you know with these things, like, know, you might I have know. a vague idea of when it's coming I know, out, but you might I not know, know the okay. exact details. This, this is what I've been told. Um, yes. I've been told the book was written by me. Um, <laughs> 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 no, I, um, it came through me as if I'm a vessel and it was a gift, you know. Um, the name of the book is Jolly and it's coming out on the 1st of August, I believe. Um, with Penguin Publication, 
and it is a memoir that documents um, my life story so far, which has been extensive and um, and varied and interesting. And I am so very excited to share it with people because it is the fullest expression of myself so far, I feel like. And that in and of itself is super exciting, as well as having something out. I think you would understand from performing a lot of times, it's very in the moment, you know, they're there, you're there, it exists, they disappear. Um, but there's something about having a, a publication version of the work, you know, whether it's words or a video uh, format, that's very exciting, where they can have it and I have no control of we're like, oh, no, 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 I meant this here. No, I meant that. Or like, you know, like there is no, they can heckle and I won't be there. <laughs> and it's it'll be very fine. And that's uh, that's exciting. I'm probably not giving the whole book a whole lot of you justice. Do, it's okay. We've got plenty of time to talk. Oh, okay. I just wanted to set it up before I went to the question. And by the way, this is not going to be one of those interviews where for people, I want people to read this book. So we're not going to spoil all the stories and we don't need to recount <laughs> things that are in the book. Okay. But the reason I wanted to plug the book was that I've always had a bit of a theory and this is not entirely true in your case. But normally if somebody writes an autobiography as young as you, like normally people write autobiographies at the end of their life and it's about what they have done. Normally if somebody has written an autobiography earlier in their life, like you're a young person, it means that horrible things have been done to them. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, that's, the story was less about what, you know, kind of they had done by themselves and what they had, you know, done. Yours has an element of that, of course, because your story is a story of someone who had to flee their country and become a refugee. And it is, it is that story. But what I loved about it, you know, is that it's not just that story, is it? In fact, a lot of the time it is very much about you and what you were like and what your perspective was and about you trying to work out who you were. So when I asked you that question, who are you? I wondered how you were going to answer it because even in your short life so far, you've had to be so many different people in so many different situations. Yeah. That's that's the that's a very interesting observation because I think Someone growing up in my generation, they're getting put in so many different directions that they have to actually identify with so many identities. And more so for an asylum seeker, you one minute in this place, the next minute in another place, that really pulls you in different directions. So you have to assume a different identity at each step of the way, you know, whether I'm in Malawi or Tanzania or Australia or UK, I have to actually adapt and figure out who I am to that place. So the circumstances kind of, you know, uh, create this shelter and this identity that I have to um, step into. And that is is exciting. And, and I wanted to pull a lot of that into a memoir because I think what's really beautiful about the written form is all the interiority of, of a human being. So that to me, was an exciting adventure to to explore on the page, for sure. I mean, I liked, uh, you know, and again, I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but I liked that there were 
I think if people hear the idea of the fact that, you know, you're fleeing a war, you've you know, had to seek asylum, you're being shunted from country to country, like in these conditions that most of us who like, you know, particularly people this and this who've grown up in, you know, places like Australia, just a way of life that none of us, you know, know anything about on any oh, practical yeah. <laughs> level, right? Like literally know nothing about. And so there's definitely that aspect to the book, but there's these moments of real bravado and like, you know, <laughs> like being a kid and like, you know, having misadventures and all those sort of things as well. And I think, you know, so often we separate that from the asylum seeker or the refugee story. Like we don't like to think, you know, it, it, it's either, I think it's either black or white a lot of the time, right? It's either they're coming here to steal our jobs and ruin our country, like completely negative, or it's the, these are perfect people who don't have terrible thoughts and like, you know, we must be white saviors and like, you know, look at these, you know, people. Yeah. Whereas the book is not that at all. It is both of no, those things. No, it is all it's not. Things, yes. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm not just one thing. I'm one and the other. And I, I didn't want to, I think what you're alluding to is I didn't want to assume a posture of a good immigrant, which is something mm. is expected of when you're like, no, 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 we've, we've given you this opportunity. Please take it, Mr. Twist. Take this opportunity, be good, follow the guidelines, and you shall be rewarded accordingly. And I was like, okay, cool. Okay, I understand the sentiment behind it. But also, if, if I do want to explore ideas and imagination that is outside the norm, I have to figure out what that means for myself. And I wanted to not only write that on the page, but to have lived that. And I, I try to make that a lived experience for myself as much as I can um, reflect on it, I suppose, for someone to hear it back. Yeah. Uh, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Today, I am yeah. 27 years old. Yeah, so 27 yeah. years old. Now, I mean, for many of the greatest artists in the world, a life well lived at 27. You know, some <laughs> of us left us at 27. They've got a cultural imprint forever. But for most people, 27 is just starting out on their journey. And and you've just, you know, written it, like you said, a memoir about, you know, the first your quarter. Some people are having a quarter life crisis. You've had a hundred <laughs> different crises before you were twenty five. You know, they are in the book. But this process of writing it, I'm very interested in. Does it feel like it opens up now a new chapter of your life? Is there an element of being able to, I don't know, reconcile that part of your story, leave some of? I mean, not leave it behind in a way of, but you know, but to go, here is this part of my story, now Now is the time for the next part of my story? Or it might not feel like that at all. You might feel more connected to those. I'd love to know what you think. That's what the point of this podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> I love how at every stage, every 15 minutes, you're like, here is the reason why we're here. You'd I have to be, remind myself. It's not for you, it's for me. <laughs> no, honestly, also is that that is a great thing to have if you ever want to be like a god. You know what I mean? Like the current image of a god is someone neglectful and then people are like in an existential crisis, like, what are we doing here? And he never answers anything. But you, like, no, 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 this is why we're here. Um, so I just want to comment on that and, you know, say that I like that. And yes, I do feel like what is said on the page, I wanted to say it in this way, you know, you said the word bravado, 
and and I wanted that to be like, no, this is once and for all <laughs> kind of feeling, because one is um, I don't want that to define a whole lot of my life, and it did for a long time. I was four when we fled, eighteen when we found resettlement in Australia. It was a a whole adolescence life that I had lived as an asylum seeker and. When it came to defining who I was and who I am in the current present to people, strangers particularly, I would find myself returning back to five, four years ago. And I felt like, okay, if I ever got the chance to reiterate all of that once and for all, I'm going to do that because I feel like life has so much to offer. And this is not a new sentiment and it's not a new way of saying it, but there are so much more things one could live and experience and enjoy that if you are holding on to a certain past, it kind of inhibits you to actually make that step, to, you know, to take that leap of faith into that unknown new experience, so to say. So it felt like I needed to do that. I feel like... Um, my subconscious was like that. So I, I wrote it in a, in a very kind of just right how I am feeling in that moment. So it felt like in that moment I wanted to just say it all and be honest um, and kind of move on to the next thing. Did you have a clear idea of – because originally it was a play before it was a book or at least some of it, right? Like, you know, that some of the story you, you did as – a play or like a, a one-person show or however you would like to define it. But in theatres, you know, you did it as a theatre show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just came back from London and I did it at Soho Theatre and it's a play. It's a one-act monologue, one-person show, whatever you want to uh, put it under the category of. And I had the pleasures of developing it at Griffin Theatre Company. So I wanted to go into theatres. I wanted to give it the respect that it deserved, and I wanted to give it the allure and the excitement that it also deserves because it's not just here I am understand this story in the most poetic sense, but it's also like, no, here are the elements of it that I find truly beautiful. So I had developed that in 2021, and um, I developed it in 20. 19 actually and then 2020 came along and we're like oh let's do this i'm really excited and then the pandemic was like fuck you and i said <laughs> come on dude you know haven't i been through enough <laughs> i mean that's a fair point right you of all people you're like come on I know. You know. now this feels personal <laughs> I know, even though it was happening to everyone, that little <laughs> narcissistic feeling of like, come on, honestly, come on, though. Um, so we ended up doing it in 2021. And then I, I spent last year, 2022, um, touring it. And it's been it's been good. So I, I wrote the book, um, you know, in the last two years. And it was developed from the play. And I took stories and I reshaped them and expanded the stories um, in a form of a, a memoir. So that is what it ended up being, yes. I'm very interested in what the audience response to the play was because you said before the idea of writing a book is you can put the jokes in and you don't know if anybody's laughing or heckling. But, but you, in a way, already do know because at least some of the core of what you're doing here in the book has been tested in front of people. So what, 
what what do you think that like what is the response to your story when you tell it on stage? What you know, what do you get from audiences? What sort of audiences do you get to come and see it? Um, the beauty of <laughs> I sound like a, a pretentious fuck, but again, the beauty, the well, beauty you're in the right place for that. That's okay. what this podcast is all about. <laughs> okay, okay. Let me, let me try and explain this. The the reason I did it. And, and the way echoing sentiments of like, oh, yeah, this was rightly done in the theater and you should have never taken it to, I don't know, an example of like Melbourne Comedy Festival. Like it wouldn't translate and it wouldn't work as well. And it's like, yes. And I, I wanted to make a point of that, that it's something that exists in that space where they come in, their phones are turned off. There's no interval. There's no leaving in between shows because you might not come back sit with it, like, you know, take it in. This is the fourth war, and what you're experiencing is something that has been rehearsed, crafted, designed from A to Z. There is no crowd interaction. <laughs> so for me, I'm treating it as, as if there is the fourth war there, and the audience are non-existent to me, and I get to meet them after the show, you know, when I stick around sometimes, and that's nice, and their response is always beautiful. And the moments where I have crafted expecting a joke... I have given up all tricks of being in a comedy club and then expecting a joke and then that doesn't go well and then your face changes. But, you know, I have the entire <laughs> script and the rest of the show to focus on so I can't really <laughs> be like, oh, my feelings are hurt because they didn't really <laughs> laugh at that bit. I have to keep going. And, <laughs> you know, there's there's like an, an odd little anecdote of like, um, you know, an actor being on stage and he he says this line and at the end of it, he asks for coffee and then people laugh and then... You know, consequently, as the show kept going, the people stopped laughing and it would be like, but I keep asking for the same thing. They're not laughing. Why, why is that happening? And then the director supposedly says, um, you stop asking for the coffee. You're asking for the laugh. And that's that's not what this is. What you have crafted is this feeling where when you hit it the way you hit it before, they the response will elicit laughter. And that's good. But you can't ask for the reaction. You can only ask for what the lines, the feeling is actually eliciting. So that has been a transformative, like a, a transforming um, lesson for me. And I've enjoyed it where even the parts that I worked, they're very little that I'm, I'm working on stage. And I only got to rehearse like 10 minutes of it when I was developing it as part of kind of a scratch program that they have at Griffin Theatre. And that was good. I could test, you know, where things are. But as you know, a lot of it is intuitive. You assume that they're going to enjoy this part of it, and then sometimes they don't, <laughs> and you're like, oh, well. Um, <laughs> but that is, you know, that's the risk. That's the risk, and it's beautiful. And, and I've watched you do it, you know, with your improvisation shows, which I love. Um, I just think that that part of intuitive breathness is what um, the craft of of making something good is all about. You take the risk and it's rewarded, and then you're like, okay, cool, I'm keeping that. Like I'm keeping the way it is. You know, when you figure out the way it works, you maintain that form. Uh, but in the early stages, you you're figuring out you're figuring out your rhythm as well uh, within it. So a lot of it was not tested, but my intuition had hoped that it's it's good and that the 
the dramatic parts can enhance the comedy because they're like, oh, we need to. <laughs> we feel like, you know, it's like intense, intense, intense beating and then like moment, moment of levity where the air is let out a little bit and you're like, okay, that was needed and thank you for putting it there because <laughs> it's been a roller coaster leading up to it. I think it's part of the joy of the book for me was that you do dance a very delicate dance from talking about specifically horrific things, <laughs> whether they be, you know, the circumstances that you found yourself, what that life was actually like, you know, what your family life at home was like in those circumstances. Some of these stories are genuinely very confronting and very horrific, but then it will swing quite wildly to, you know, quite a lighthearted look at some of, you know, your life in these circumstances as well in a very good balance. And I was wondering whether that was like really specifically something that grew out of the stage show, that need to break up. Do you think that the book would have been written differently if you hadn't done the stage show first and sort of had that tension and release aspect to it? Because you really felt it in the book in a way that often I think if someone hadn't done it as a stage show first, and again, this may absolutely not be true, it was just my impression while I was reading it, was that there was a really good balance of when things got too dark, they were immediately sort of, you know, that you'd go to something lighter that wouldn't undercut, it would just keep you engaged in, you know, the reality, like you said, the full breadth of who you were rather than you being you know, one particular cliche. So do you think that that grew out of the stage show or is that something that you think would have been in there regardless? Where does that come from? I think my disposition in in life in general is to be at weddings as much as at funerals because I think uh -huh. that is part of the difficult struggle of being alive is that loved one you know that brings you joy um, is at some point going to reach their demise as much as all of us. And that kind of um, archiving of those memories shouldn't be selective. And I, I don't know a kind of artist that it stems from me that just talks about one thing. You know, there is this kind of sentiment in theory and theater and comedy for it to be funny, 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 super humorous or super dramatic, super dramatic. And I, I always like the in-between, the in-the-middle, because that to me exposes a certain kind of understanding from both sides. And that is where empathy truly lies, because you, you, you can humble yourself in that moment and say, oh, no, I identify with this as much as I identify with this. As much as this was painful, um, here are the moments that were joyful. And a lot of that was done through therapy. <laughs> and um, I have to admit, the, the fact that I had to sit with these stories and figure out well, what is the positive? Because the therapist will always ask you, okay, how how do you want to look at this in a different perspective? And then you're like, oh, I do have to <laughs> look at this in a different perspective. Otherwise, I'm just in in a morose kind of, you know, um, mood all the time, which is not what life is if you're lucky. And I have been lucky. So that I wanted to reflect on the page. I don't think there was a version of this book 
that was leaning too much in the other direction or completely one way in the other direction. And my stage shows have always been written with that in mind. I always wanted to, which is why I, I had a a difficult time in comedy clubs because I, I was like, I want, to, I want to show you a part of the story that is not completely hilarious, that is sincere and uh, a bit confronting and thought-provoking. Can you allow me to do that? And, you know, most of the cases, I'm in, like, a pub in Brisbane, so they're like, no. no <laughs> so you no, have no, to... No, thank you. No, no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I, I've had to, you know, find my way through the cave and, and, and find that sweet spot. Yeah. Have you done uh, much stand-up? Like, have you been doing stand-up while you've been doing the stage show? Did you just walk away from doing stand-up while you were doing it? Or have you been combining them? Or have you done much stand-up since having done it as a stage show? I, I don't know what the situation you've been doing, but I'm, I've got a question that follows me finding out this information. Oh, okay. Um, I haven't. That is the the truthful, honest answer. I stepped away to figure out how to make it better for me. I feel for a long time I felt it jarring. I felt it um, uninteresting at the way stories were being shared. And I remember coming out of, <laughs> I came out of the pandemic because no one was doing shows and and I hadn't done the play. And I was a bit devastated that I hadn't done the play because I was super excited about that new form that I was wanting to explore. And I went to Melbourne and I went on stage at Comedy Republic and I, I started doing this version that I've been training on the page as well as in theatre, which is just sharing. I feel like um, my shows have gone better when I'm most intimate, when I'm sharing. So I started to try this sharing um, version of storytelling and... I remember <laughs> hitting the 10-minute mark. I was doing a 10-minute spot and then going 15. And then unbeknownst to me, asking the stage manager how long I've gone, yeah. which looked <laughs> <laughs> however it looked. And then I went all the way to the 20-minute mark and still kept asking how long I've been going because it was this just um, loose moments and... And it was fun. It was good. The audience was enjoying it. But I remember going backstage and one of the bookers going, oh, you were doing your solo show tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? I went that over? And, and it wasn't like, and I, I was like, I, I had no idea. And, and I, I apologize. But it was in that moment where I figured out that I, I'm losing myself in the stories. And so is the audience because they were not complaining. You know, they no. were not like, oh, no, we're done with this. It's just. Oh, no. If they were done with this, you would have known that you'd gone too long. <laughs> That's the whole point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would have you left at the appropriate time if they were done with you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, my point is at that moment I realized. So I, I yeah. came back to Sydney. And I was like, okay, cool. Let me focus on this in the theater. So I, I didn't do a whole lot of um, comedy in clubs at, at all. And it's a, just a different animal altogether. So I focused on doing that. I did that and I, I toured it. And I was doing 
shows here and there, but um, I haven't been on on stage in that context of a comedy club in a, in a while now. In a while. Do you think you will go back to it, or do you feel like you've gone off in a different direction? And like, I mean, I, I'm interested in knowing. Do you think that? Because if you do go back, I imagine everything that you've learned. I mean, the Comedy Republic example is different because you're in that. That was teaching you a lesson about what you needed to know about your one man show. I think that you know that, yeah. that was good, right? And that was like, that was a good environment for it. I yeah. mean, you've you've been there. You know, it's a, it's a really warm, um, inviting space. So the the audience mm. are receptive to kind of you know a little bit of experimentation. So in that moment when I needed to do that, I was allowed to do that, and and I'm still doing that that kind of experimentation to figure out um, how I can bring a certain kind of sincerity um, to my shows on on stage, and that that to me is exciting. So it's not like that chapter of my life is closed, but I, I do realize, and I find it, I don't know, not so much so in a lot of practicing comedians in. Australia, but overseas, there is um, there's a separation of of genre, and mm. um, some kind of exteriority where you're like, oh no no, I'm involved in something totally different. So my mindset, my physical presence is totally in a different zone. And you've done very, you know, for a long time, very different modes and forms of um your art and your work. So I'm curious for you what that looks like, whether you're on set or whether you're on the page or whether you're in this format, whether you're completely in that headspace and you don't want to step on stage or do you bring different modes and kind of intertwine them? What does that look like for you? That, thank you for asking me that question because I do th- – it, it it's my observation as well from people – the bigger the market gets basically – the more idea there is around specialization. And it makes a lot of sense also. Like, I mean, if you are a professional stand-up comedian in the UK or the US, like you could, you know, tour a thousand seat theatres, you know, 200 nights of the year if you're a successful comedian. You know, you don't need to like be doing a whole range of other things, whereas obviously Australia is a much smaller country and there's a practical nature unless you happen to be Carl Barron that you can't really <laughs> specialise, you know. You need yeah. to be a, a jack of, uh, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, which has been my speciality <laughs> over my career. But I'm, I'm really happy to do lots of different things because I think early on when you're only getting the opportunity to do one thing, and, you know, and I think you might relate to this because it, it feels like everything has to be in the one thing. Every piece of you, you know, has to be in everything that you do, you know. Whereas after a while, like what I love is that there is a piece of me that can have this conversation with you that is very different to the guy doing the improvised show on stage and the way that I would be trying to get a laugh with every line that is very different to the guy who hosts Gru- – like sometimes people will watch Gru- Gruen and then they'll come and see me do stand-up and for good or for ill, they'll say, that was so different to what you do on the television. And I was like, yeah. Like, I mean, it would be inappropriate for me to take my stage act to the television yeah. in that circumstance, but it would also be very boring – for me to be doing <laughs> that version of me, you yeah. know, on stage. It wouldn't yeah. work as a stage act. And so the older I've get, got, 
the more comfortable I am with just taking a part of me to each project, the part of me that needs to be there for that project. And I don't need to take all of me with me at all times. And that way, doing each thing feels like a break from the other thing rather than an extra. It's the only way that I've been able to balance the amount of things that I do is it's almost like you know, doing one of them, doing this today is a holiday from, it works my intellectual mind in a way that, you know, doing my, you know, dumb cricket podcast tomorrow won't or whatever. So that's where it is for me. But tell me about that through your perspective and your eyes. Um, okay. For me, in relation to you, when I, when I first um, saw any of your work, it was through, um, you know, video online and things like that. And then I came to see you live in Melbourne for the first time and you were doing one of your full shows at the Art Centre and it was it was fantastic. I enjoyed myself and everyone in the audience did. So it was a wonderful show. And I felt, and I think this is what I'm trying to do, I felt that whatever it is I saw and really identified with on screen that version of you, there was still parts of you in the live show. And if you can translate that, it doesn't matter what you end up doing because then they'll still find that perspective of yours in everything that you end up doing. And so you're not spreading yourself thin per se, but you're just bringing that core part of yourself into every project and format that you end up getting involved with. And that to me is beautiful. It doesn't feel like I have to like, oh my goodness, learn a whole new skill all over again, which is what it feels like when you're coming up young, such, for, such as for myself, I felt like, well, look, I haven't done a lot of these things. I haven't written a memoir ever before. How do I translate this? But then I had to figure out that I, I do have a specific voice. I do have a specific African diaspora voice that expresses different perspectives and enjoys various things. So I had to bring that into a longer format. That's all it ended up being. And for people like yourself, I have found that you do end up bringing that and it doesn't feel like it's, you know, a whole new... I mean, I'm I'm possibly simplifying what it looks like. I don't know how it feels like for you, but it doesn't feel like you're extending too much or learning a whole new skill when you're on stage or on screen. You're bringing that element of yourself to that project. And to me, that it feels like a, like really um, the best way to, to approach different projects. And I do enjoy extending myself to different varied projects. Okay, good. This is a good uh, like uh, place to ask you this. So... Let's talk about it through the idea of voice. Like, where, wh- wh- what is the story you're bringing to these things? I mean, we know the story. You've written a book about the story. You've written a one-man show about <laughs> the story. Yeah. But yeah. when we talk about the voice, the perspective, the way that you see the world and how that story – I'm. it's not that I'm not interested in the story. I've literally just read the book of the story. But I'm more interested, I guess, for the purposes of this chat to say – when you talk about that voice, what has that voice distilled into at this part of your life? How do you see the world? What is that perspective that you have that perhaps, you know, differs from, you know, the perspective that other people have? Like, you know, how would you – can you articulate it or is it just a range of things, a sense of things? 
Okay, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think argumentatively, what I was obsessed with and still am is what's called the new sincerity. In a kind of postmodern world, rejecting that form of irony, which became so ubiquitous in the 90s and early 2000s, spreading from US, UK, and all over the world, in the Western world. Um, I just thought, <clears throat> come on, do I really want to lean in into so much of um, that version of, of comedy or that version of storytelling, which is what I'm involved with. And the new sincerity is this, is this movement of, of art and literature and music and all forms um, of that feeling and to really reject the old ideas. And, and I wanted to bring my voice to that. And whatever story I was going to live, you know, accidentally, you know, I was born in a certain place at the same time. If I was, I don't know, born white in a, in a different circumstance, I would still want to reflect my time and what it feels like to live in that moment. And that's the voice of um, come to express. I felt, and I do explore this in the memoir, that the gift that has been given to me is to conjure worlds through words. And for people, that can be a leap of faith. That can be more than a leap of faith, in fact. That can be to really know a lived experience. You don't have to know me. I'm not too egotistical about it. And I hope the eye that I do adopt in the memoir is purely for the narrative sense. So you really feel what it feels like to be in that moment, like really smacking you on the head. And that's what I wanted the book to do because a lot of things that gave me comfort, that gave me discomfort, you know, for good, were things that whacked me on the head. I was like, what is he doing right now on that stage? What is what is this passage doing to me right now? I watch a movie and I'm like, what's going on? I listen to a piece of music and I'm like, what is that doing to me right now? I'm, I'm entering a world that, one, maybe I was not invited to. One, I don't have a language to actually articulate, but the feeling is there. And that is what I was going for, that version of new sincerity where I, I get to express that feeling and... That to me, I was like, okay, this is hard. It was the most difficult thing for me to, to articulate on the page because also, you know, with music, it's different. It's, music is one of the better forms where you can express a feeling more than anything. But with words, you're trying to, you know, articulate that feeling in the word format, the way you like rearrange words, sentences, where you punctuate it to get to that feeling. So that was a difficult process, but one that I welcomed the challenge to really contribute to what gave me comfort and discomfort growing up. So I'll, I'll tell you what, it, it's interesting to me because I'm just going to be entirely honest here, you know, in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable. But so I read these stories of, you know, your life, life fleeing war and being in refugee camps and, you know, the unimaginable to the standards in which I've lived my life and been raised like lifestyle. But the thing that whacked me over the head, the thing that I found most confronting about the book um, was literally the idea of you being whacked over the head and your relationship with your father. Now, I, I, don't, I don't like it's I, I just 
I had a very interesting like my father just very very different circumstances and very different life to you know and I'm literally been this week planning with my brother and sister what we're going to get my father for his 80th birthday and you know that's my experience of you know having a father and and what the story of you know the father is there might have been a few wooden spoon on the behind <laughs> you know when I was yeah. a kid but that's really the extent of whereas you had a very uh, a much more complicated relationship like with your father and the way you wrote her about that like I don't even know why I found every time I found it confronting it was almost as if it was almost the practicality of how you describe things that I when I was reading them, was finding, like, you know, there was a love and a practicality behind some of what you were saying, describing this, you know, man who was many things. Um, and I don't want to speak for any of those things. I just want to tell you what my reaction to those things was because often you would then just, like, say the thing and then just stop and move on to something else. And I'd realise I was, you know, two paragraphs into reading whatever you'd moved on to, but I hadn't taken any of it in because I was still kind of reeling from you know, this story of, you know, violence or an interaction or whatever it has. So how how now do you, you know, look at your relationship you have with the fa your father? How much do you want to talk about that, the imprint that has on you? Or just do you want to react to, you know, what my reaction to that was? I feel what I wrote on the page about my parents, specifically my father, is an honest account of what I thought the boy in me would describe what is happening to him, which is what I learned in therapy. You know, they would ask me to just be there and describe what that is as a young person without all the flowery language that one adopts in growing up, in becoming a human being in becoming a responsible adult. To the child, it feels grand, which is why it's described in that sense, which is why also we feel a type of way when things happen to children and we're like, oh no, that's, that's horrible. And it is horrible and it should feel horrible and it should feel as grand as it is. And I wanted to describe that because my father, as I understood, or perhaps misunderstood him, was many, many things. And he passed away, I should say, which is not a spoiler alert at all, but something I do explore about. And I'm weary of that. I'm weary of asking too much of the dead, which is not fair. You know, a, a one-way monologue, you know, is not... <laughs> a fair thing in general at all. It's not reciprocal. So I'm not challenged on my perspective or my story. So it's how I felt. It's how I lived it. And I wanted to explore that. As far as I knew, what made him such a complicated, difficult man is that, one, he was raising a family at such a difficult time. Two, he was born at such a difficult time, born in the 1950s in Rwanda, where what happened in 1994 in Rwanda really started around then, which is all this sprung of civil war and civil conflict where Rwanda is just figuring out its identity 
post and pre-colonial times. And because we'd both left the country, there was no way of connecting to him with that sense of it. I couldn't walk down the street and then he would be like, oh, I remember that place. All of this was very new. We were in Malawi and what was being asked of us is to forget the past. Here we are in the present. Deal with it. What you're being asked of is immediate survival. It's very immediate and you can't really spend time reflecting or contemplating or pontificating, which all mean the same thing. But I only... They do. I only, I only repeat that because... Because <laughs> you're an author now and you're good with words. <laughs> they do mean the same thing. I don't know why I had to. But like it's, 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 there's something about like the, the repetitive nature of like yeah. being whacked again and again and again that feels jading but also quite critical to a certain pun. And you and I know that, you know, certain mistakes and shortcomings are because of certain puns that we are ignoring. So I wanted to identify those puns in me and in my father. It was more difficult in my father because, one, he was not around. Two, I didn't understand him fully with what was given to me. So I ended up conjugating the story as it is in the memoir. And um, there's certain parts of it that, my younger self is telling, no, my older self is telling to my younger self, like, oh, please forgive me if I get these stories mixed up, but I'm going to tell them anyway. And that was an important key to be aware of how, you know, asymmetrical it is. Like, really, like I'm here and no one else is here tr telling these stories and you have to hear it and take it as gospel. And I hope that you have your own misapprehensions about it when you hear it and really try to live in both worlds because that's what I tried to do on the page, given what I was given. And for my mother, it was the same thing, and she is alive and well, and that was a different thing because it's, it's a constant work through where I can give her a phone call and be like, oh, what, what does this mean? What did that time mean to you? And after a long time of not being in Rwanda where I couldn't actually do that to be able to see through my eyes what my father through what my father saw through his own eyes for the first time I, I was able to last year I went to Rwanda for the first time in over 20 years which was very exciting for me that I could afford that trip and be there and enjoy myself and enjoy the earth that I came from which is not the case for a lot of people fleeing their hometown. They labeled exiles, sometimes put on certain list where they can't enter back in the country. And I was able to, and I was very lucky to do that. And to be able to see through the exterior of what my parents would have had saw, like in their childhood, was beautiful. And that gave me a different perspective. And I do adopt that as much as just telling what I felt as a child around him. Um, so that complicated interiority that my father had is something that I had, given that we were both living through the same present of survival. And it's something I, I explored on the page, which is cathartic in a way. Yeah. 
I am interested in if having the story that you've had and having people sacrifice so much, you know, really, your family sacrificed a lot. You've you know, lived in these – is there a weight to – like, is it easy for you to be frivolous, like, about things? Like, are you still – do you have – I mean, throughout the book, there's certainly moments within it where you can see that frivolity, right? Like, that you're not living with the harsh weight of – so I'm I'm interested in like are you able in the way that everybody has an expectation of frivolity or you know in their life that you can have wasted moments is that something that has carried through to you as an adult or do you carry this baggage and this weight of what's been done before and is I, I'm just interested in what your perspective is on a day to day basis. You know I I have a good friend that lives in China and we grew up together and we went to high school together. His name is Patrick. And he said, it's different for you. He said this recently. He said, it's different for you because you're removed from it. And for the first time in a long time, it awakened me to my new experience, my luckiness, like how lucky I am to have, you know, been 18 to start a new life, which is a really a good time when you have possibilities and you can start a life. Most people, they flee and they are in a new place at the age of 30, 40. You know, their brain can comprehend a new language. They can assimilate in the new economy. I was lucky to have identified a new version of me that could enjoy the present gift that I have been gifted with. Without being too much of a victim, we also without being too much of like, oh, no, I'm so grateful that I'm here. I wanted to just reject all the, both of those ideas. And for me, that, that honesty, being honest with that was how I could be so frivolous because I do have my moments of like, no, 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 I, I enjoy the good things. I have good taste. I enjoy the good things. You know, when I'm like, oh, traveling through Paris and Berlin and all these places, I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. Let me take my time to enjoy what's been afforded to me when I can. Because, I mean, what is what is the point after all? You know, after all this time of wanting um, to free yourself, to really reflect that in one's life is what I have been lucky to. And... When I can afford it, I do it. And when I can talk about it, I talk about it as honestly as I can. I uh, um, ask people on this podcast if they have a life philosophy of any kind. We've already explored so many versions of that conversation, you know, in the 50 minutes or so we've been talking. But is there anything that we like that we haven't talked about that you would that fits into the category? It can be in regard to anything, as I always say to people, life work, love, something big, something small. And an appropriate answer is also no. But I feel like with you, <laughs> if you said no, I'd be like, you're wrong because <laughs> I can identify at least three things from this conversation already. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But I, And one of which, by the way, is – I've never heard the the story of you are asking for the you stopped asking for the coffee and you started asking for the laugh. But it's such a great insight because it's something that I tell people all the time anyway. Which is it's why people often do very well at their first ever gig because they they're not asking for the laugh yet. 
they're yeah. just asking for yeah. the coffee and after a while you think you know how to ask for the laugh and that's when you lose <laughs> it and so yes. i loved that if you'd yeah. brought that to the table and that was the only one you were going to have today i would have been like good episode <laughs> it was good to have oliver in well done but i'm going to ask you uh, officially because this is the main conceit of this show so do you have a life philosophy of some kind um first of all Remind me because I, I don't tend to orbit in circles of um, content a whole lot of time. Um, remind me what your life philosophy is, if, if it has evolved, if any. I mean, mine, mine evolves constantly. And I think part of the reason that I ask people this is that I think that it's nice to just get a snapshot of what the prevailing thought going through someone's mind at some time is, you know, like what is it that you think is, you know, important? Like what is it that, you know, you value in your hierarchy of needs? You know, like I often say to people that if I was doing stand-up now, it's, it's it, I, I often find these things easier to frame through a work lens than through a personal lens, but they often are still the same thing. Yeah, you're still having the same conversation. But for example, if I were doing stand-up now for the reasons I started doing stand-up, you know, to, I don't know, like, you know, get famous and meet girls and, you know, like whatever, <laughs> like whatever the motivations would have been 30 years ago when I started. <laughs> sure. It would be very sad if they were still my motivations to continue doing it, right? Right. So the conversation is already be always being updated and uh, and. Oh. Oh, hang on. I'm just going to – I'll give you a moment to think because my dog wants to get on the couch and oh, she's okay. too old to do that by herself. So I'm oh, going to do okay. that. No, you do hang that. On. You do that. Is she on the couch? She's on the couch now. She's staring at me from the couch. She uh, – um, she's old. She's nearly 13 years old, which is of her breed. And she's, um, got a little bit of, uh, osteoarthritis in her joints. And so we were at the vet this morning getting a little injection. And now she's just snuggling with a hot water bottle on the couch. So. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah, that's nice. No, it's a nice, luxurious life my dog has. <laughs> really good to contrast with your story of the hardship of the early years of your life. Is the luxurious eastern suburbs of Sydney life that my that's French also, bulldog has lived. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's you know, it's 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 weird. It's weird you should say that because a lot of people get to they love to go on this on this on this line, this like this yeah. down the road of like, no, 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 yeah. compare the life. It's like, there's no way you could compare the life. You know, if, if you're lucky, you've lived a good life. And if you're so unlucky, you've lived a so not good life. But, but I remember moments, which is why it, I'm so insisting on this. I remember moments that I was having fun where it didn't matter who, you know, anyone overseas was like it did not matter and certain moments i was just having fun with my friends and i was that was my lived life my lived experience as far as i knew it reality was that reality was the present moment where i could just enjoy the company of my friends and this compare the thing you know tends to give people this kind of feel good feeling and i'm like yeah you don't need that i i don't need that i'm fine you know um and if if you can, it should extend beyond beyond that. And and I I try to articulate that feeling of like no 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 no. When 
when we are not talking, I hope you think about it further than that because it is a complex problem. It's a complex issue of, you know, displacement right now. 60 million of the population is in refugee camps of one way or another. And it's not an easy thing to go, well, how and what can we do about it? It's not a solved issue in a day, you know. It's not what it feels like at the moment where technology has streamlined that process of exponential doneness where you're like, no, 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 let me hop on the phone and I'll I'll talk about it and I'll feel good about it and it'll, it'll have been done, <laughs> you know, and then somebody will pick it up from there and they'll run with it on the news and it'll look good and it'll feel good. But it's like, no, 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 it's, it's a constant daily reminder of, you know, if it took them years to end up in that situation, it might take years to untangle them from that situation. And that's the important thing is like it wasn't easy to write this memoir, but I also didn't write it overnight. <laughs> like I, it, it came to me in the way of reworking it and working on it again. And the urgency that feels on the page is not what was in my mind. <laughs> it was quite chaotic. And um, that also is the, the, the beautiful thing that I'm, I'm constantly having to remind myself. Um, and we were talking before about your philosophy and um, mine. I feel like I have not lived long enough to have a philosophy of my own. You know, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre post-World Wars is remembered to have recited something along the lines of, Everything has been figured out except how to live, which is something I remind myself of and over again, that it is a continuous ladder of like, no, 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 this is an endless ladder. It, it just keeps going. You have to figure out what it means specifically for you and those around you, your loved one, your friends, your colleagues, your dog, um, your cat, and <laughs> what it means, you know, if you're privileged, um, <laughs> and, and you're like, you have pets around there, or if you have a tiger, I don't know what people have around their houses. And you have to figure out what that looks like for you. And I refrain from giving people their straight answer because then it gives them a formula that they can apply to other people, you know. I'm not one of those people that has a, a screenshot of the perfect quote or like, you know, I wake up and whatever my sign, my zodiac sign tells me what to do today or the way the moon is, it you cannot have a definitive answer of who you are or what it feels like to experience life because it will always, always be new. And that is not something I learned through some beautiful at work, it was just life. The way I lived it, we were moving so much at any given moment that I had to internalize, like, oh, no, 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 it changes all the time. And that's the thing. That's the good thing about reminding oneself about everything being figured out except how to live. I, I love that answer. So, I mean, I think that part of the reason that Normally, I bring this up about an hour into the podcast now rather than very early in the show when I first started was that there was a temptation even in a conversational sense to then frame everything else we talked about through 
whatever somebody had said is the answer to what's your life <laughs> philosophy, which is very much what you articulated just then. Whereas yeah. now it tends to happen much later in the show and we've already talked about so many things before that yeah. and it's a, a point yeah. to reflect on. And it's interesting because I never fully answered you and part of the reason I never fully answered you is part of the reason I started this show is I wanted to hear what other people said and I, I think partly because – I didn't know myself. I've been asked a lot over the years and my answer will change depending on what day it is and probably depending on what time of the day it is. But the one that I always come back to and uh, the reason I mention it now is because there's some similarities and often I talk about it in relation to, to stand-up because there are times in my life where, you know, having done it for nearly 30 years, 30 years next year, where I Bravo. just think... That's, that's well, a wow. No, but I like. I think if you dedicated yourself to doing something for thirty years in a lot of other things, you'd feel like you had mastered it. You know, you'd yeah. feel like you yeah. know how to do it. Whereas with stand up, yeah. the most horrible thing about it is that almost there's a point where the longer you do it, there's a, it, often you can get worse and worse at it. Like you know, <laughs> like, like there, there was a time you could have stopped, and you know people would have thought you were brilliant. Yeah, but if you keep going, so good, yeah. you actually get worse and worse. And but the other thing is, you never get a sense of every time I look at that blank page, I never think, oh, I know how to do this now. Like you know, it, it right. is always that fear of can I do this again? And for a while, that would absolutely torment me. Why can't I get better at this thing that I've been doing forever? Whereas I think now I've become comfortable with the idea that I chose it because it's hard. I chose it because, like, I can't deny the fact that part of what appeals to me is trying to master something that is essentially not able to be mastered because in a broader life sense, that's what life is. We spend all this time here trying to master things and do things and wonder if we're working out life right. Mm -hmm. And then we just die. I then know. we just die and we don't get an answer of whether we – there's it's, no score it's like at the end. It's like an up and up and up Yeah. Right? You're like, you just do it. And then, and then some, we all just die randomly at some stage. And I know. And if, if you're lucky like Jean-Paul Sartre, people, like lots and lots of people would have seen your work and they'll flock to your funeral. Like his funeral was <laughs> – not massive apparently him but, though is it no like not much dead. good to him but like if we're gonna reflect post life I only say that to say that today though like if if someone of equivalent past it would just be like a couple of double taps on your phone and they're like True. oh yeah oh that was nice maybe we'll yeah. go back to the clip where they talked about this that we liked and we recite to other people but that's about it that's about it no you know I have to admit a very scary thing for me because when it came to comedy, that was the, the most thing that scared me the most where the the entry into comedy is you you just you can see a billboard that says there's a show going on, go sign up on an open mic, hop on, and without any sort of talent or skill or gift for that matter, be able to articulate a sen sense of weirdness and reconcile with the audience and get a laugh. That to me was so scary. I was like, well, what do I bring to this? new art form <laughs> it's it's so scary will and for me what someone has done it for 30 years and not be jaded and not and see new people come around and see the new fades and fashions come around and dwindle away i'm curious what it means to you to elevate that form what does it look like to you and more importantly when did you start doing the improvisation shows and what that what has that 
done to you to your scripted shows? Uh, thank you um, uh, for asking because it's probably been the the biggest like change to my like I mean I really I, I was 20 years in I guess when I first did those shows and I used to do them uh, very much to just try material like as in like you know the things that I did like, I wouldn't plan to try material but essentially yeah. you're hoping yeah. that you would get material out yeah. of them at it's the also very something least, you right? can do like when you're 20 years in like if I went on stage I was like I'm gonna <laughs> improvise the whole thing they'll be like oh god no please no just do your scripted thing and we'll be okay but, but I think honestly the audience- in the early days I would take in like at least a few stories up my sleeve that I hadn't like worked out but i thought you know there'll be stuff in here that you know i'll be able to make funny on the spot on stage it was probably about five years into doing it where i really decided to fully commit to the concept which was if you saw me six nights in a row you would see (laughs) six completely different Different shows. shows and they they might be different in tone they might be different in that i would accept what it taught me was that Fear, the fear of failure holds you back from like because the best moments of the show are when I'm in a hole, like yeah, I've run something into the ground or something just didn't go how I wanted it to go. And then I can acknowledge to the crowd that I'm in a hole, you know, because yeah. they know I'm in a hole. Yeah. Like and the thing I think often as audiences is there's a bit of them that they want you to do well, particularly my audience who are coming to this. But in general, <laughs> I think that audiences want you to go yeah, well. Yeah, they want to see you do good. Often the disconnect is like when they're like, do they know they're not going well, you know? Like <laughs> they're in the audience and you're yeah. like, no, no. And if you can actually just acknowledge that and then then dig your way out of the hole and they can watch you dig your way out of the hole. You talked before about that idea of, wanting to be able to bring, you know, sincerity. That's that's my version of sincerity. Like mm. this is real right now. Yeah. You are about to see a person who for the majority of this show looks like what they're doing is easy. And sometimes with that show, honestly, they can go so well that people mistake them for being easy, whereas right. they are not easy to do. You Like you have to be fully engaged at all times like to do them properly. But it was when I realised that have nothing planned wherever it is just be there you know it's, it's if you, super if you scary say, yeah well no because here's I, what i will say after okay. a while and this i guess is just the the final bit of this is it, it changed my shows because it taught me that you you know, you could take your comedy to those places right so firstly it changed my stage shows in that it changed the rhythm of them but i think more than that is i actually just like doing those shows more because I think I'm maybe better at that than I even am at doing my stage shows because I don't know if there is a lot of people who can just literally go out and then create because what I try to do now is literally create an entire show in that room with those people that night and tonally like, you know, the Wednesday show might be very different tonally to the Thursday show and I don't mind now if somebody – share something with me from the audience that is a bit sincere for a while or is a bit sad or is a bit weird. Like I'll live in that moment a little bit more before going back to you know where I'm going to take it comedically. And I'll try to just say, well, this is tonight. You know, tonight we're having this energy and this vibe and this is what the show is. There isn't a 
preset how I need this to go. It is very much like we are just going to create something here tonight that will never be seen again, at least in this form. Even if I, even if something comes up here that I end up nicking for a, you know, a stage show or whatever in the future, um, it will never be presented in the way it was tonight because tonight is just a very special occasion for, and I get a thrill from doing that now that I, I'm not sure that I can get from doing my pre prepared <laughs> stage shows. I know, and you have to keep yourself excited about these things, you know? And and that's why I, I say it feels scary for me because it's not a professional brevity, it's a personal brevity that it, it like it, it you're like, okay, this is how I feel today, and I'm gonna go on stage and present that to the people. Um, where you could fall back on your material. Like you know what you're there to do and you could fall back on that. And to say that I'm I'm not going to is um an artistic challenge that I, I do admire in you um very much so. So it's nice to watch you work. Uh, well, I've also been doing it for more years than you've been living on this planet. So <laughs> you do have to find some it, new it, challenges. Not, nonetheless, it's something. It's something exciting. It's something you know. I've I've seen people that have been doing it for longer than probably both of us have, and they're not doing anything exciting. And I'm like, well, then what is it? Is it about time, or is it about the kind of person you are and the kind of work you want to put out, where you find? something new, something exciting, you know, and it's not just time jading you out and you're like, oh, I've explored everything I can. Um, that, that to me is the part that I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on in, to speak to that, to that point of yours. Yeah. Uh, we've touched on death a couple of times already. This is a standard question I ask on this show, which is what do you think happens when we die? I'm interested to hear how you answer this question. Um... What do I think happens when we die? That's um, it's um, it's a bit of a, a frivolous question, isn't it? Mm. I, I mm. personally, I don't care what happens yeah. when we die. Again, a totally appropriate answer to the question, but I, <laughs> but talk to me more about that and how that frames you. Because I mean, what this show is about, I hope is about what motivates us while we're alive. And for some people, that is the promise of a reward after death. There was a period of time in your life where you were raised, raised Christian, dabbled in a couple of other, <laughs> dipped your toe yes, into a couple of yes, other religions. Yes, I, yes, I have. So, yeah. uh, so it's interesting to know right now, like, a, you know, whether you have a, an idea, a hope, an expectation of like what happens post-death or whether you have no expectation of what happens post-death and therefore this is all we are and and then it gets to the why of why this, you know, of it all. So walk us through, did you ever believe, did you ever think, you know, even being raised Christian, were you, there's an afterlife, there's a, you know, God in heaven, you know, see you in hell sort of version of what you believe? Um, I should frame this in the way that um, I think will make sense to what comes after what I say, which is that I have accepted death like as part of life, and that gives a lot of meaning to what I do. I think a lot of people could use a lot of that to give meaning to their lives, to accept their limitations. I am not a god. Um, immortality to me scares me that idea of 
endless goingness that does not have a punctuation. What kind of life is that? I can't even imagine in in my wildest kind of contem- contemplation to like. Like what? That this goes on forever. The fact that there's a punctuation is nice. You know, there there are people that you're like, oh, I can stand talking to you for an hour, but if this was going on forever, bro, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> you know, it's like the the kind of like people and situations you end up in when you're like, oh my good thank goodness I'm by myself with my dog or my loved one or just at home chilling, enjoying my company. That is what I think it will feel like to have put that punctuation. I, I hope everyone has good health and lives a long, fulfilling life. And I do hope their death is as painless and as peaceful as possible. That is my goal for everyone. And to accept that 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 path, you know, there's a there's a philosophical treatise about this called the denial of death, which is an Ernest Becker uh, preposition that there are three things people have contrived to deny themselves: death, you know, which is love, art, and religion. And for me, I grew up super religious, and I believed for the longest time that there is an afterlife, that I will be rewarded, that I must be good. And when I started questioning the kind of moralistic Christianity that has been imposed by colonialism where I grew up in Rwanda and Malawi and Tanzania, I had to figure out that, no, 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 this is trying to create a certain kind of person for me, a certain kind of consumer capitalistic person that obeys the law, follows the guidelines, and they get to live this life where some things are promised if you're good, you get to receive them. And when I started rejecting those ideas through different variations of religions, as I talk about in the memoir, I figured out that, okay, all right, I love, I have my loved ones and I hope to live with them, be with them for as long as I can and love them through the entirety of it. And then I have my art. When I get to experience it because I'm present, which is lovely, beautiful, I get to enjoy other people's work see how they think, see how they feel, see how they beautifully paint certain things. And my contribution to that, as I see it fit, I'm super lucky to have been in that scenario where, you know, I'm not just at a desk at a nine-to-five working endlessly towards some goal that only, you know, really encourage you, encourages you towards immortality, which doesn't exist, by the way. You're like, no, 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 I want to have this thing forever. And you can't. You can't have it. You cannot. Until when such tech companies have defined and, you know, released the cure to figure out how to stay immortals, it is, you know, very naive and romantic to think that you're going to keep going on forever. And you shouldn't want that because that is not... If you really, truly sit down and think about it and contemplate that, that is not, it's a miserable life. It will be a miserable life. And we don't stop worshipping, which is what religion does. We don't stop worshipping in this life. And you just redefine what you worship. And for me, it has become art. Recently, when I was in London, I went to see a show at a church. Um, Hackney Church. I went to see the London artist Samfa. Are you familiar with Samfa? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and he's an experimental artist and he's released only one album and I went to see him and I was super lucky because I've seen him before a few years ago in Brisbane when he released the album and I was so excited. I brought my friend and it was in this beautiful church and you can tell that it's meant to be spiritual and angelic and it was a 360 audience experience where the stage was in the middle. He had a band, he was playing some new tunes, some odd tunes in a different way and I was sitting down in in the rows of chairs that there were two rows of chairs and then the rest of people were standing. And I felt a connection that reminded me of being in church. And I was like, oh, yes, yes. Whatever it is we came up with to have the church, that desire, we can achieve it outside of church. We don't have to (laughs) go to church to do these things. And personally, I reject the church because a lot of bad things happened in churches during the genocide. It was a Catholic, there was a huge Catholic population in Rwanda, and a lot of people during the massacre were trapped in the church in the guidance that they would be safe. And then the priest would let the extremists in and they would just annihilate everybody. Like they would kill everyone, which was so awful. And I tried to press myself in the like in the last moments of the person who has that hope. And like, no, no, this is a safe place for me. But then you're like, no, no, it isn't. But I I feel safe going into a church and experience uh, like a piece of art. And I'm like, no, no, this is the same feeling I wanted when I went to church. I I used to be in a choir and I I loved it. And seeing people in a church sing beautiful songs, it was it was lovely. And a similar thing happened to me when I was um, in Berlin. I went to see James Terrell um, installation, which isn't He's this lighting designer that is fantastic, like super fantastic. And a lot of Jali, the play, was very much so inspired by him in the way that I've designed the lighting with the wonderful Morgan. And I went there and all we did was sit down and watch lights change for an hour. Nobody talked. It was super meditative. It was super spiritual. And in that moment, I remember feeling like, okay, This is, I'm happy with this. Whatever happens next, when my life is done, I have lived it. I have lived, when I have contributed as much to life as life has done to me, I would have been content by then. So I don't contemplate a whole lot about what happens next, you know. And that, to me, is the beauty of it, the limitations that I have accepted within this lifetime, I think give it so much pleasure, so much pleasure. What do you think? Oh, I mean, I'm glad for the way you answered that. I think it was really interesting the way you, I mean, the idea of us not stopping worshipping is really interesting to me. I, I In my show this year, I speak about the first thing that I went back to post-pandemic because I yeah. stayed inside. I, I, as I explained to you at the start of this podcast, <laughs> I am the only person who's still in the Sydney lockdown because yeah, I've gone yeah, back yeah. into lockdown because I'm working <laughs> at the moment and everybody's yeah. sick. And so, but I tell the story about the first thing that I went back out to and it was, um, to, I went to see Kendrick Lamar in Brisbane. And yeah. the, the thing that I- That would have been talk, so good. Talk about a lot though, is this idea of like, I'm not a religious person at all, but I love that event so much. And so much of it was church. Like, firstly, Kendrick is religious, like at least in his way, you know, so there is some of that traditional thing. But I take that aside. Take out what, like, you know, <laughs> that, that aspect of it. 
Yeah. Just yeah. the actual night itself. The yeah. way that it happened was Kendrick essentially is on stage by himself most of the time spitting these incredible verses about life and the world, and then 12,000 people would sing the choruses together. And all it was was a preacher and the choir. You know, that's what it, this – I mean, it was for me it was a hip-hop concert, but at the same time it was that exact same thing that people would have got from – going to church and hearing someone speak and then that feeling of everybody singing something together. It was just being replicated in that room, you know, in the – the very lovely church that is the Brisbane Entertainment Centre on a Monday night. <laughs> but I understand what you're saying. Um, so as an artist then, with that in mind, you know, where do you – you talk about drawing inspiration from different places. Um, you know, tell me tell me something else that's inspiring you at the moment. Is there something in particular that you're loving or consuming that you are inspired by? Um, I think I, I felt so much like a novice coming into the art form because I didn't come out out of a conservatory, you know. I didn't – train in an academy, there is no certificate proving that I can do the things that I do. And somehow I do them. And I felt an imposter syndrome beyond that feeling of like, oh, I might not be equipped to be present here, to perform, to write, to articulate and participate in this world. And for the longest time, I just spend my time like absorbing that, wanting to, like, how do I, how do I translate that? I know, I know what I see and I know what I feel, and I wanna, I wanna do that. That I, w- I wanna do that just in in the way that it is, and it became an obsession of mine. And I think I've cultivated a, a same kind of sword where I can chip away those inspirations and I can start to come out of my own. But I still gravitate towards things that give me permission to talk about what I'm about to talk about in a way that I think is beautiful. When I when I reference Sanfa and James Terrell, um, is is because in, in theater, music and light is super important. And I use music from a guy called Daniel and light from a guy called Morgan. And they're talented people and they managed to get my ideas and my vision of what's in my head onto the stage. And collaborating with people like that is something that I've grown to enjoy more and more. And more recently, in relation to Jali, the memoir, I read for the first time a memoir by Dave Eggers, a heartbreaking work of a staggering genius. And it is a brilliant memoir. And in all my time of reading extensively, I've never come across such an articulation of excitement, heartbreak, sadness, humor on the page at the same time. And it's it's whacking you. That's the other thing. It's like whacking you. And I was like, whoa. And this is a book from year 2000, over 20 years ago. And... I remember when it came out. I literally remember that's how yeah, I remember yeah. distinctly my friend Lyndall, I believe, might have given me a copy of it like literally weeks after it came out. I just uh, recently, people who listen to this podcast know that I gave it a plug on one of them recently, which was 
uh, the Circle or Circle, which is uh, uh, Dave Eggers' novel mem- recently, the, yeah, which yeah, I yeah. very much enjoyed. But um, uh, so I'm interested in when you talk about that artistic journey and you know the combination of these things. Like it's interesting to me now that you've done the play. You've yeah, you've got this memoir coming out. Yeah. The cycle of a book means that you're going to spend a period of time very much talking about what's what's in the book, you know, what people are going to be, you know, hopefully you're going to be doing interviews and press and like book festivals and all these sort of things that come with writing a book and people will want to reinterrogate those stories and have you tell those stories and ask you questions, you know, about these projects. But at the same time, it also feels like you've drawn a very distinct line in the sand of, well, that's my story so far. Like it doesn't mean that there isn't stuff you haven't left out. It's not everything, of course, right. but it is very much it's the big headline story so far. Is there any sense of what's next or you have like are you still very much in what this is right now and you haven't, you know, like set your sights to what it is that you do next? Um, what's next? Mm. Such a well, I don't even mean like in a sense of have you moved to that place, I guess, is like are you still in the place of the person who's written the book and done the play and this is where you are, these are my stories, these are the stories I'm telling or is there a part of you that is searching around, whether it be at this, you know, a show at a church or, uh, you know, a different installation somewhere else or something else, is there like the part of your brain that's like, what's the next story that I'm telling? What's the next chapter of this? Is it about having that adventure before you get to tell that story or is there an eye on that story already or is it about re-exploring the story that you're telling at the moment? I'm just interested in where your head's at in relation to that. Like are you still very much in Jali the story and that's where you'll be for the next year as you promote the book and tell the story and and do the show or is there part of you that's moving on to to what it is that is next? No, neither of those is a correct answer. I'm just I'm just curious. Okay. Um, I should say that when I was very younger, um, the fact of making your mark is so in your present thinking that you're like, no, I need to put out a lot of work. I need to work, 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 work. And the pandemic put a different perspective on that where I was gearing up to do a few things and I hadn't done them. And I thought, well... Let me see if there's a different way to do them. Maybe I can wait for that ecstasy moment, the thing that excited me in the first place to make this a substantial work that is comparable to the things I do enjoy. So I'm waiting for that rush of excitement. And I am writing a lot and, you know, like everyone else, enjoying life as much as one can which is nothing that is taught to you when you start being on stage. It's like, no, it's, you know, you have to live life and have something to talk about and have something to say. And I'm never one for saying things for the sake of saying. It has to feel present. It has to feel immediate. It has to feel um, like it serves a certain purpose, like it fills a certain gap for lack of better phrasing. And at the moment, I'm writing a lot and um, I'm hoping to get back on stage. But also, I am excited 
to put out something like this. And I know you've put out several books uh, before, and you must know the shared feeling of like, oh, no, this is the first thing someone will have and they can take home with them and it'll be, you know, removed from me and I, I don't have to speak for it anymore. And, and I'm excited to share these stories. And like you say, because the nature of the memoir is that it's lived experience up to date, I'm excited for what comes next, whatever that form takes. And it's it'll be as honest as a, I can explain it or exploit and share, more importantly, as sincere as I, as I want it to be. So I I am living humbly and I always try to and wait for it as opposed to push it. Because when I've pushed it, it's made me desperate. It's made me sad in presence of, like, I don't know, people that book rooms and theaters that don't really matter that much. I'm like, come on, I have this thing I want to do. But I'm super desperate. And I'm like, no, it'll, it'll happen, however it happens. So um, that patience, which I had to go back to, which is a different kind of patience when you're, say, I don't know, waiting for 14 years for a country to resettle you somewhere. It's different because you're like, no, 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 I, I need this. It's like waiting for that check. But when you're waiting for a different kind of um, inspiration for a different kind of um, story to share, anecdote or perspective. Um, there's no, there's no need to rush. You know, the quick, the quick ones will come and they'll go, and um, you enjoy them as much as anyone else for that 15 seconds or however long. And um, whenever I am ready to share the next one, I will be, I'll be able to and. Um, as it is right now, I'm excited to share the the stories that I've talked about in the memoir, which is which is exciting. It's exciting for me. Uh, just some fun questions to finish. This is the this is the run home. Well, this one it can be as fun as you want it to be. It can be serious if you would like. But uh, <laughs> uh, Kurt Bronella um, uh, asked this of Pete Holmes on Pete Holmes's podcast, but I love this question, and so I like to ask it to people. Uh, would you prefer to know, and you have to pick one or the other? So in this instance, just for this hypothetical, you cannot opt out of this hypothetical. You need to know either when you die or how you die. Which of those would you choose? When I die or how or I die? Or how you die, yeah. One or the other, and you can't choose neither. You have to choose one or the other. I can choose neither. No, have you to can't choose, choose neither. You have oh, to choose okay. when you die or how you die. When I die or how? I die. I'll go. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure this is not a surprise to you for for my answer. No, I have to go with how. <laughs> I have to go with how I die. Yeah, and then and then I can plan a fun a fun mm. event around it. I can just you know, <laughs> I can be I I can write a whole story around it. You know, make make a whole a fun thing about it. When it would just make me super stressful uh-huh. about uh-huh. you know getting yeah. things done. I don't want to know when something is gonna happen. Maybe how how is interesting. Um, uh, how is interesting because how then is interesting to me on. If it was something that you did all the time or something that you loved, say, for example, you don't know when, but the how is that you have a heart attack on stage or you die on stage. Maybe it's as general as you die on stage. So 
Would that stop you then from going on stage? Would you think I can cheat death by not ever going back on stage again? Or would you just think, oh, well, that's nice. I'm going to die at some stage doing the thing that I quite like to do. So, you know, that's that's like, you know, I, I'm interested. Would it affect the way you lived your life if you heard it was something like that? Like I would die on stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm wherever. That you would die doing something you do regularly. Would you then say you're going to die in an aeroplane crash? Would you stop? taking aeroplanes or would you just uh, think oh well that's just part of part of life and i'll find out at some stage when that is you know i mean this free will and determinism thing is interesting because i would just i, I can't change it you know I'm, I'm a bit um pedantic about these kind of things where i'm like okay if it's gonna <laughs> happen you know it's, it's gonna happen that way you yeah. know it's it's you know it's not esoteric it's not to be like misunderstood or understood by a small group it's like I feel like you know the sun will rise it'll happen so I, I just want to know how you know it'll be interesting if it, <laughs> if, it, if it happens like on stage it's interesting because like um, yeah. there is there is a moment to just make that you know like a fun thing when someone is watching you know and the theatrics of it presents itself there's like a comedian that died on a TV show and nobody thought he was dying it was like a heart attack and I was like, oh, it's so, what? so hilarious. Everybody was like laughing and they're like, no, cut to commercial. Um, yeah. I want one of those. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'll really make a moment out of this. Um, well, I mean, you're right that you, it could be a show. If you found out like that you were going to die on stage, it's also a quite a unique selling proposition to the market to say, look, I know <laughs> that I am going to die on stage. Tonight could be the night. Like, yeah. you know. <laughs> or, or not tell them and make that show really interesting. And, and like, yeah. Or just have a Super surprising in every yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, and then one, don't know. one show where you're filming it and they're like, whoa, this is the moment everyone was talking about in all those, you know, conversations. And it's like, oh, nothing's happening. Um, um, what What is the best or worst piece of advice that you've ever been given or both? Like, I don't mind, but I just like a best or a worst. Something that someone told you that they definitely thought was true that you've later found out was complete rubbish or something that someone told you that you've carried with you as a, a good life lesson? Um, <laughs> when, I, when I was going to school in um, Chinsapo in, in Malawi, there was the class we used to take called um, <laughs> Life Skills. And it's something I, I haven't found anyone else to have taken. Like, this is not something that... Also, it's not predominantly like a thing people have in Western society because, you know, you live life and everybody, your friends will tell you about it. But it's so removed from a lot of privileged things in these, um, I don't want to call them underdeveloped countries, but for lack of a better term, let's say that uh, for the purposes of the argument, like underdeveloped countries where you have to have like a bullet point of like what to do and what not to do. And um, we used to take these classes of, like sex education and, and things like that. And I quickly found out that, no, this is not helpful <laughs> at all. <laughs> so I've always been like super suspicious of conventional wisdom, you know, the kind of things people tell you. But coming up, you know, in, in performing, you know, it's such a nerve-wracking thing. A lot of people tell you these things about to like get your energy up and to like really calm yourself or to not, I don't know, open with the new stuff at the beginning of the set. And 
or not do, you know, different sets when you're booked at a club to maintain a professional pose. All of things are rejected. I was just like, no, no, I want to, I'm working towards something. I have the end goal, the vision of what this is. And trust your intuition is probably something I have discovered within myself that's helped me. And it's it's a through line of a lot of um, people working in our industry where you can trust your intuition and it will do you good. It'll do you good. So that awareness, that present moment awareness, I think is is good for you if you can, if you can cultivate that. And it's not easy, which is why I'm not saying it as a thing of like conventional wisdom. You have to really cultivate yourself and to listen so you can articulate um, what it is is in your mind. Oliver, obviously, Charlie is the book, and people um, uh, can buy that as soon as that is out. And yeah. uh, uh, I've read it. I g- give it a full endorsement. It was really entertaining. I'm so glad that we actually – we planned to have this chat a while ago, and then I'm so glad that we've got to have it with the book coming out because we've done a very good job today, I think, of giving uh, people a perspective of what, what's in the book without spoiling anything that's in the book. And that's what I hope to do. You, like, you like to do that, yeah, because you read it and you liked it. If if you were go- okay, I don't want to be I- telling uh, the thing I hate doing personally, and then you ask me a question. That's fine, but I'll the thing I hate a lot is when so I go into something and somebody says, "Just tell me the story that's in the book," and I'm like, "Well, I want people to read the book, and I want to read it in, <laughs> them to read it in the context yeah, of the book." But also, yeah. me telling it now changes it. But you asked me what you were going to say. Well, I was just going to ask you if there is um one one part that stood out to you in the. In the memoir, this is a flavorous question, but also when people, I'm asking this for my own because mm-hmm. then I can tell people, I can tell like, oh, yeah. Will thought this part was good, so maybe you're gonna enjoy it. Because oh. for me, to me, is a whole, you know, um, the sum of his parts is definitely holier than the parts itself. So I, I well, like it's it's a bunch of very different stories, honestly, in okay. the way that I related to it because okay. like. From And I assume like a lot of people who are going to be reading in Australia are going to engage with it, at least some of it in the same way, which is early on when you're telling the stories of the the war in Rwanda and like like what life is actually like in a refugee, you know, camp and what it was like to flee and lie and all these sort of things that had to – and not knowing and all those sort of things, I always am grateful when – an artist can take me into a reality that when I saw it on the news, because it's not like I couldn't go and read about the harsh reality. of, And I have read about what life is like on Nauru or like what life is like. But until, like, you know, you gave me permission to wander through there, like as a tourist to be able to go, you know, hey, this is what life was like. It wasn't always terrible, but here's how terrible it could be and here's the child's perspective of what this life was like. And so a lot of that I just was grateful to be able to be in those scenarios and learn about that, what that was like from your perspective in a way that entertained me, you know, because obviously it's a lot easier to learn about something and have a greater perspective on something while you're being entertained. But I guess (laughs) – what I am more compelled by, and I don't really know what this says about well, I know exactly what it says about me, is there used to be a cliche about Australians that we would 
there would be press conferences of an American star would get off the runway in Australia to come and do a show and they would do a press conference while still on the runway, hadn't made it into the airport yet. You know, they used to do these, you know, big press conferences and they would always be asked what they thought of Australia. And the ridiculous nature of it was, of course, that they literally just stepped off a plane onto a tarmac (laughs) in Australia. But Australians are always obsessed with what the rest of the world thinks about us. But I guess there's still a part of me that really I leaned in very much when you arrive in Australia because I wanted to know what Australia looked like to somebody who had lived the life that you'd lived. Like, you know, and and I think what I loved about the book is that I think you t- you paint a very realistic picture, which is there is an element of gratitude, but there is a lot of realism about like, particularly when you suddenly find yourself in Ipswich in Queensland as your first experience of yeah. what Australia is. And very early <laughs> in that experience, you have like an encounter with the police that really defines like, you know, hey, you're not from here and we've all got our eye on you. And anyway, I guess for me, I don't know why, but there are like, that's when I really lean into a story because I want to know from an outsider's perspective what that was like in Australia and what your relationship with Australia is in those circumstances because Australia has such a complicated relationship with the way that we let people seek asylum in this country and the way that we relate to people who have, you know. So I just, I guess for me, that was when. I sat forward in my seat. Does that make sense? And that probably says more about me than the story, though. I guess is right. Is I, I, I think that you know the the convention of like, oh, who are you writing it for? You know, I don't intend any of that to be esoteric, but you know, in the same way, someone asked me if I would do the play in Rwanda. I was like, well, it wouldn't make any sense to them. You know, it's 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 about someone who left the place. I would do something different in Rwanda. It, it excites me to go and try and work on a on a different show, perhaps that it might be tailored to their lived experience. But I'm talking about someone who is um, on a momentum of exile, place after place, and that is not quite relatable to them. And I, I can still do it in the hopes that they see, from my perspective, what it is like. But I'm always curious what someone like you, for instance, or like uh, just a regular Australian would say about Australia overseas. Because to me, that's what it was like to describe my home to someone new. And so the book is not possible if I don't return there. It was never going to be done. And and I, I wanted to write it like a, a little longer ago. And I was like, no, 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 I need to go back. I need to know what that means. It, it took a while to make sure that I, I have the finances and the possibilities and the time and to do that. But without that interior perspective, without what that feels like to be back home again, I couldn't, I could not articulate the feeling of having left because what did I leave behind unless I actually reconnected back with that feeling? So it feels like a love letter for me um, of to my my home, my many homes, I should say. I, I, that's that, that that definitely comes across. I mean, there is a sense of each of the places and the yes. strengths and weaknesses of each of the places. Yes, and each of them seems to be. I don't think there was any unfairness in the fact that, like you. 
in every situation you were willing to point out the good and the bad and and often in people as well that you're willing to put out the good and the bad and you in yourself I mean and often you'll play with that concept there's a line that made me laugh out loud which and I, I won't be quoting it exactly but you might know it exactly but I'll tell you the context of it which is that when you're confessing that you stole some money from the uh, the yeah the plate at the church yeah and, <laughs> and and there's there's some line along the lines of before you make any judgments worse things have happened in churches or something very <laughs> similar to that and yeah it's yeah. and you really do feel like in that moment a you're telling like you know a flawed story about yourself but then you very quickly managed to do two things, which is reach right through the book to the reader because I really did feel like you were talking into their brain of before you judge me in this moment for stealing money out of the church plate. Remember (laughs) that the church has done a lot of worse things and like you really, you go to both the reader's judgment but then take them to a place of judgment of the church all within, you know, a sentence and a half really, like which – to me, tells exactly what you're saying, which is that capacity to point out your own flaws, the flaws and joys of the place you were in and the flaws and the joys of the, the, the prejudices of the people who are reading your book. You know, you actually reach into their brain at that moment. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a good moment. That's a good moment. And I think you would agree of because of the nature of a um, confessional, how performance can be. Like you, you feel like you're speaking directly to the audience, and the memoir is also a good um, format and mode of like, no, you're speaking directly to the audience, and I, I loved playing with that in the in the book. Um, so I'm glad that you enjoyed yourself. That's good. Thank you. Uh, final question, sir, because uh, we are about to run out of our studio time. Sure. So, uh, uh, this one's just for fun. So I have a time machine. <laughs> it doesn't need – actually, you know what? It doesn't need to be. I don't even know why I said that. Uh, but I have a time machine. I do not have a time machine for legal reasons. But I, uh, if I did have a time machine, I would offer you one round trip on my time machine and you could go to any point in the future or the past. You could change history, visit someone, visit your own life, give you advice. I don't care. We're not going to fuck with the time-space continuum or any of those sort of things. It's just – a hypothetical. I'm, I'm, I'm interested whether you would go forward or backwards, and then I'm interested in where you would go to in a time machine. Um, what moment I would go to, and whether it's mm. it's forward or backwards. Yeah. Oh, you've obviously thought about this long because you ask this of every guest. I'm assuming. Yeah, I think about it all the time, and I'm I'm obsessed with people's answers. Whatever they are, I'm obsessed with them because, like, I'm. Some people go a hundred years into the future. Is that you? Would you go a hundred years? In, would you have the confidence to go a hundred years in the future? Oft, a hundred years in the future. <laughs> what is happening a hundred years in the future? I mean, it feels too far in the future for me. It feels like things will have advanced way too far for me or fallen apart way too yeah, badly for me yeah. by then. Um, okay. Would you – yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, what would you – where would you go? Here's my yeah. answer which might be reasonable, maybe way too reasonable. But considering that I am not a futurist and I cannot speak about pre- predictability, I'm going to go to the past. And for me, an interesting moment in time perhaps is – 
before we have these smartphones. So I would go maybe even well, way earlier before we have like um, before we have computers even, right? I might go to the writing age, right? It was a, it was a nice time and to figure out what that means. Obviously, because of my pigment of my skin, certain moments in mm. time will not be very favorable. So mm. I have to think I have to pick a place. But mm. let's say I go to a place where I am welcomed and I can contribute to the society and, <laughs> and all that good stuff without any kind of fuck around or, you know, interrupting the space time continuum. Um I would want to be in that moment and I feel like it wouldn't be such a hard time to stay in the present and enjoy people's company or try to get distracted every now and then by whatever is happening with our new fun toys. And I think that would be a fun time for me. I don't want to change anything. I don't know how to change anything for the course of the future. Um, I would want to experience what that time feels like, mainly because when I read like beautiful historical novels and they talk of a certain time and period, I feel transported to that. So I would go to that time and period just to see how the other side of time lived. Oliver Twist, it has been a, a great pleasure to have this conversation with you today. Thank you so much for doing it. Um, I appreciate you being on the show. If people want to find more about you and your work, where is the best place for them to do that? Um, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> because if Get- they just Google Oliver Twist, yeah. uh, that's not going to be as helpful as they like. Uh, Oliver Twist, nah. Twist writer, Oliver Twist book, Oliver Twist comedian. What is what? Do, what do people need to do to find out where you are and what they can consume of yours? Okay, for the purposes of this chat, go get the memoir in various bookstores online. It's published through Penguin Random House Australia. And if you go to the website, they'll have various links of where to get it in your local area and so on and so forth. So get that. And what you could also do, even if it's not out yet, is pre-order it because like pre-orders are really good for books. Like uh, publishers (laughs) love a pre-order. So you can pre-order it. Yes, yes. I I will speak to this. Get it. It's it's good. It's the most potent work I have worked on so far. So I would appreciate if you got it. As far as myself... Man, I'll be I'll be loitering around, you know, a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> you'll find me on George Street sometimes, uh, or Burke Street if you're in Melbourne. Um, you know. Thank you so much for doing this today. I super appreciate it, mate. Uh, thank you, and um, have a, have a good day. Uh, up there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Listener.